Good evening. If you are new around here, my name is uh, my name is Stephen. I'm glad you guys are here. Thanks for joining us tonight for our our, our Good Friday service. Uh, we have a, a value around here. We have well, we have seven of them actually, but one of them is simple but meaningful. And uh, for our Good Friday service this year, we thought that we would really um, focus in on that value today, uh, just in our service. And Sunday is going to be a lot different. We've got, you know, a full band, and uh, the lights will probably be, you know, more than just one color, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But tonight, we really just wanted to kind of practice the art of simple but meaningful. And so uh, our service will feel a little bit different than like a normal service that you guys are used to attending around here. Um, but as a team, we just kind of uh, were praying and, and thought what would be, you know, something, something new or fun to do. Um, and new is, you know, interesting because it's actually kind of old. Uh, and so tonight uh, I'm going to teach a little bit and uh, Hannah will read some passages of scripture. And then uh, Lindsay is going to sing over here at the piano. And here's the funny thing. When we started or, or thought about doing this, we're like, hey, let's just keep this simple. Uh, and so like, it'll just be, you know, Lindsay and I, and then we needed a reader. So we added Hannah in and, and then we hit Monday and my voice left. And then we hit Tuesday and Lindsay's voice left. Uh, and so here we are on Friday. I have no idea what's about to happen over the next hour. Uh, so, you know, if Lindsay starts singing and nothing comes out, somebody in the crowd, just come on up, push her over. All right. Danny's already hopping up. Where is he? All right. Um, Let's tonight just put our focus where it's always supposed to be, on Christ, on the cross, on the beauty of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Again, if you're new around here, uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Um, before we, we hop into just the rest of our service, we've got one thing we've got to take care of real quick, and that is, can everybody tell Tom, happy birthday? All right? Happy birthday, Tom! There we go. All right. Tom is one of our elders, uh, and it's today, actually, like today is his birthday. So how fun that we get to celebrate that. Hey, let's pray, and then uh, we'll get on with it. Uh, Heavenly Father, one opportunity. And together with brothers and sisters in Christ, to open up scripture like it did 2,000 years ago to let it hit our hearts to be challenged by it to be changed by it and to see the beauty of the cross Father I pray that what you would look in and see here tonight is just a group of people who love you and are so overcome by the beauty of love poured out on the cross and that you would hear our worship, our time together, and it would bring you great joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as a church, we've been in this series through the book of Acts, and we got to chapter 2. Uh, it took us about three months, but we got to chapter 2. And as we started journeying through chapter 2, uh, we started like a little series within our series entitled, The Church That Jesus Came to Plant. 
And within this little series, the church that Jesus came to plant, first what we saw was the Holy Spirit descending. He had been promised by Christ, uh, but then he, he finally falls in uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And there's a sound of a, a rushing wind, and we see the first clue of the church that Jesus came to plant, and that is that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, or as we say around here uh, a lot, unless Jesus is leading it and the Holy Spirit is empowering it, then it's not a church, or said more positively, how you know it is a church is that Jesus is in charge and the Holy Spirit is the power. And then after that, we saw then uh, later that how God actually goes about building his church then is through spirit-filled people. And so we talked about last week uh, and the week before what it looks like to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very first Christian sermon that was ever preached. The very first one. And it's preached 53-ish, depending on how you count, 53-ish days after what we know as now as Good Friday. And so 53 days after that, Peter stands up and he preaches the very first Christian sermon. Think about that. How many sermons have been preached since then? Millions across the, the world uh, for 2,000 years and uh, countless different languages transcribed, uh, now shot across the world via the internet, uh, people downloading them on podcasts. I mean, all over, sermon after sermon after sermon. And today what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the very first one. What was in it? The, the church that Jesus came to plant, what kind of sermons should it preach? And maybe you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with Good Friday? How does that like connect uh, to this? I was getting my hair cut and the hairdresser asked me like, uh, do, did you like have to like rework your um, series to align with Good Friday and Easter? And I said, no, God is like beautiful in the sense that he like just lined it up perfectly. And so what I uh, want to do this morning is just more. I'm going to do that four times. Okay, that's one. What I want to do this evening is look and see how the very first sermon ever is actually the perfect picture of Good Friday. It reminds us so much of Good Friday and what happened. And, and realize that this sermon here, it's being preached by Peter. I mean, imagine Peter's perspective on that Good Friday night. The, his perspective then 53 days later, um, remembering that that was the night that he betrayed the Christ. Or maybe uh, he went back 54 days later uh, when uh, he had sat around that table with Jesus and uh, a bunch of uh, his friends, one of them wasn't really their friend anymore, and they sat around that table and Jesus had spoken some words that they would have looked at and said, what in the world does that mean? Like, Jesus, what are you saying right Right now, as you're instituting the Lord's Supper, we have no clue really what you're saying. But 54 days later, I wonder if his perspective would have been different. It would have. In fact, it was a similar question that actually stirred the first sermon. See, after the Holy Spirit fell, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the fire falling on each of the 120, what happened next is uh, below in the temple courts, there were thousands of Jewish people uh, who had come from all over the world. I was thinking about this and wondering, I bet, I bet, if I, if I had to wager, not that I do, but if I had to, that one of the guys who was probably there that day in that temple court 
was a chief Pharisee, a young up-and-comer, a guy by the name of Saul. Because every good Jew was in the temple court on the day of Pentecost. So I wonder if on that day there was some guy named Saul listening into the very first Christian sermon. And so the Holy Spirit falls and descends, and the, the thousands of the, the Jews that had gathered for a celebration um, all of a sudden are drawn to the upper room, and in the upper room are the 120 Jesus freaks, the 120 who are making these crazy claims that Jesus was king and Jesus was Messiah. And this is who uh, Peter addresses the very first sermon to. Uh, in fact, as he gets into his sermon, and he starts it off by saying, men of Israel. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 21. He says, men of Israel. He's looking out at the crowd, the thousands who are gathered there. And they've turned their attention to listen in. And, and the reason Peter began to preach is because when the Holy Spirit fell, the 120 began to communicate in, a, in languages. Eleven of them are listed in Acts chapter 1 that they had never been taught. And the thousands that are listening in start looking at each other going, wait, are you hearing this in your language? Are you hearing it in Mede? Are you hearing it in Mesopotamia? Are you hearing it in this? What? They ask this question. What does this mean? What does this mean? The, the first sermon ever was res, a response to the question, what does all of this mean? Oh, see, and in the scriptures, first always matter. They're always really important. As if what Peter is showing us is that sermons from here on out are going to be um, responding to a question that the skeptic, that the denier, that the person who doesn't want to acclaim Christ as king is asking, and that is, what, what does all of this mean? Why all of this? What's it all about? One group asked that, the other group looked and just said, these guys must just be drunk, they're crazy. And even today, today, isn't that kind of the two responses sometimes you get? One is like, oh, this Christianity thing, like it's just kind of crazy. Uh, like I don't think I would ever um, um, uh, align my heart with that. And then there's another group of people who kind of look in and they go, yeah, but what, but hold on, what does all of this mean? What does it all mean? And in response to that question, then, Peter begins the first sermon. And the first half of the sermon, he's just explaining from the Old Testament all of the supernatural stuff that they had just heard. And that's not a bad way to preach a sermon. That's half of a good sermon. Here's some scripture, and here's some understanding of it, and let me now apply the situation that you're in right now uh, and that you're seeing. Let me put some scripture into it so that you understand it a little bit better. And that's actually a, a, a decent way to preach. But about halfway through the sermon, Peter transitions when he gets into this, and he begins to drive a point where he's teaching us that this is the point uh, of all points of what every sermon is supposed to be about. At some point, every good sermon has to transition from explanation about Scripture to proclamation about Jesus. So Peter looks out and he's like, hey, men of Israel, skeptic, denier. And I know that day he was very clearly talking to Jewish men and women who had gathered 
But really, he's talking to the skeptic or the denier. He's talking to humanity for all of time. Those who would question, those who would doubt, those who would wonder, what does this mean? He says next, hear these words. Think of like a, a teacher with preschool students who's gathered around. He's like, listen, listen, listen. Hold on, guys. Hold on. Or like uh, when a public speaker says, hey, if you only hear one thing. And so here, uh, Peter, he's already given half of a sermon, but, but then he goes, hold on, guys, hold on. Hear these words. What I'm about to say to you, what I'm about to communicate to you is absolutely essential. I don't want you to miss it. Make sure you're focused in right here on this moment. Skeptic or denier, you don't want to miss this because what I'm about to say will uh, not just be a proclamation that 120 of us believe, but it will be a proclamation that will ring out for um, however long time goes on. In fact, Peter would explain later. It will ring out for all of eternity. Listen up. Skeptic, denier, all of human history, every person from every time and every era, listen into this very first sermon because it matters a lot. Peter's like, I don't want you to miss what's going on. And then in the, uh, in the middle then of this line, when Peter's kind of ramping up the sermon, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. And then what Peter says next is the blueprint that had never been used before. It was a thought or an idea that no one had tried yet. See, he looks in and he goes, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he just says, Jesus. And I wonder if the Jews, because this is the same mob that we will um, experience a little bit later in our time tonight. Uh, the, the same mob that, uh, it, that had turned on Jesus on Good Friday. It's many of those same people. And it is certainly those same religious leaders that are gathered there on that night in that temple court. It's the same group of people who a couple of days later, a couple of chapters later in the book of Acts are going to run up to Peter and the rest of the disciples and they're going to say, hey, you can talk about community and you can talk about love and you can talk about doing good deeds and you can have ideas on how societies are supposed to be formed and you can educate people around your thoughts and your philosophies, but do not speak the name of Jesus. That same group. And I wonder when Peter was preaching the sermon and he said, men of Israel, hear these words, or skeptic or denier, uh, listen up, this is important. Jesus, if that one guy who was there saw uh, that really good Pharisee, if something like riled up inside of him that made him begin to think, like if I hear that name one more time, I'm going to kill somebody. And then he would. A bunch of them over the next few chapters. And see, so when Peter, on that particular day, when he began to say, Jesus, what he was doing there uh, is he was changing something. And this is what it was up until that moment. And even to this day, every great movement knows something. And that is you don't build a forever movement. You don't build a long-term thing around a person. Why? Because people die. 
So we, we even look at the great businesses of our days, the great entities of our day, and even they know this is true. I mean, Chick-fil-A will serve delicious chicken long after Truett Cathy. Why? Because it's not built around a person. It's built around an idea. Even the, uh, the American experiment, as it has been called, uh, wasn't built around Washington and Adams and Jefferson and the rest of our founders. They had to write something down and they cemented it into a constitution because they knew that one day they would die. And when they did, they wanted the American experiment to continue. They wanted everybody uh, to continue to enjoy the freedoms of what they had written down in that document. And you look then also uh, at every religion, every religion that has lasted longer than a single lifetime, they all knew something. We have to build this religion. We have to build this movement on an idea. We have to build this movement on a philosophy. We have to build this movement on a set of practices or a worldview or a theory around how all of life works because the theory and the practices and the philosophy and the written structure of it can be passed down from generation to generation to generation. But in the very first Christian sermon, Peter grabs the crowd and he says, hey, listen up, Jesus. This movement is not an idea. This movement is not a theory. It is not a worldview. It is not a perspective on how life is supposed to be lived. This movement is built on, is based around, is centered on for all of time. One thing, and it's a person, Jesus. Jesus. And then He says, and just to clarify, I'm talking about of Nazareth because I know it's a common name. He says, Jesus, you know, of Nazareth. Don't you remember? Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you, you remember him because you remember what happened in the weeks and months after his birth and the pain that caused our nation. Some of you, you remember Jesus you remember Jesus of Nazareth when, and I wonder if Peter looked down, he's like, you, you guys were there. You were there. Remember that when he was like 12 years old, that one time, and he, he stuck around in the temple, and a bunch of you were like, who is this guy, and how is this 12-year-old teaching in such a way? You guys remember Jesus of Nazareth, the one who used to run around with his, with his father as he was learning his trade. Jesus of Nazareth. I'm standing next to some of his brothers and sisters. Jesus of Nazareth. Peter goes on and he explains a little bit more. He he says, you know this too, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man. And he was a man. In fact, he was fully man. But he's also fully God. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man attested to you by God. In other words, a man who God put his stamp of approval on, a man who God affirmed 
with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. You remember Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, Peter might have been thinking, I was there and some of you were there. Don't you remember the day that he was baptized and we all heard the voice like some of us? We can still hear it right now to this day because we'll never forget it. It was like everything was calm and quiet and we heard all of a sudden break out from the heavens. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus of Nazareth. And then he went on and he did these works and he did these wonders. In fact, uh, I wonder if Peter, he's standing up there and he's looking in the back. He goes, listen, there are 10 of you here and you're here right now. And the only reason the 10 of you are here right now is because you were leprous uh, and, uh, and he came into your village when nobody else would and he healed you. Otherwise, you would still be forgotten, isolated and out there. But you're in the 10 court today because of Jesus of Nazareth. And I wonder if Peter looked around and he's like, you, the only reason that you're actually hearing my voice right now instead of just watching me flail around is because Jesus made it so you could hear. You, you walked here today instead of being carried in here by your friends because Jesus of Nazareth, you, you can see me. And the only reason you can see me is because Jesus gave you sight. Legion, where are you at? Dude, you were more messed up than anybody. 10,000 demons. You remember what Jesus of Nazareth did for you? I wonder if Peter was preaching Jesus of Nazareth. If back in a corner, there were like two, 3,000 of them that were like, don't you remember when we were so hungry? Listening to him talk. And that little kid came up. He prayed over it. And he fed us all. Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter... Standing before him, before them all, the skeptic and the denier. He says, I want to make this very clear what all of this is about. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. And then Peter begins to tell us, remember, he's answering the question. But what does it all mean? What does it all mean? He says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. Oh, Peter is making a strong statement here. What's he saying? He's saying, for all of time, rejection of Jesus will not be because of lack of information. He says, you know. Later, that Pharisee, who I think was in the crowd, would write a letter, and in it he would say, hey, if you don't believe in all of this God stuff, just go look outside. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. All of this information about Jesus, all of this knowledge of what he did and how he acted and how he operated, 
all of that, that won't be the determining factor on whether or not you embrace him because you yourselves know. You have seen it. You all have seen it. You know everything that he did. And so it's not about information. That won't be the thing that changes people. That won't be the thing that moves somebody from I'm with Jesus or I'm not with Jesus because you yourselves know all of you do. You've seen what he did. You can go look outside and know that it's real. And so there's got to be something beyond information that will um, transform people into following Jesus because you guys already know who Jesus of Nazareth is. So what does this mean? What would it be what would it be beyond information that would move people to embrace Jesus because the works and the wonders and the signs didn't do it. They made him famous. They drew the crowd. But that crowd still rejected him. You've read the stories. You've heard them preached. You know the book. But that doesn't do it. So what does? Peter then transitions his sermon one more time. And he says, this Jesus, this Jesus, let me tell you. Let me tell you about something that happened like 53, 54 days ago. Peter's just gonna, he's like, I'm just gonna use one line to sum up all of that stuff that happened over that three-year period and, and then even some of the stuff a, a little bit earlier in his life. He, he says, let me use one line to sum up the incredible life that that man lived and the way that he loved us and the way that he made us feel known and the way um, that, that many of us just felt new life surging through us, but that didn't matter because it, uh, we all rejected him anyway. Um, but he says, uh, but, 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 but let me now transition and let me tell you something else that happened. This Jesus, 54 days ago, he was delivered up. He was delivered up. The phrase here, delivered up, it like, uh, you can look at it a couple of different ways. Like the, the phrase delivered up, it could easily mean like he was handed over. Uh, right? But even like when you hand something over, like handed over could be like, oh, you know, I had these things and I don't really need them anymore. And so I'm just going to hand them over. I mean, nowadays, when we think about being like delivered up, we think about like the, like the cheapest of all things, right? Like my pizza was delivered up. I just got on my app and there it is. But Peter says, no, no, the transition from knowing about Jesus that you yourselves all know, the, the transition moment is, is the fact that he was, in fact, delivered up. And it is the, the rest of the story then that actually makes us understand this part of the story better because we have to stop and ask ourselves, what was delivered up? Or maybe said better, who was delivered up? 
when we go back to the moment when the father said, this is the one. And what did he say? This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Or as the perhaps most famous verse in all of scripture reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave, that he handed over, that he delivered up. He parted ways with what? You, his son. Now this was not the cheap passing of something that is done useless or forgotten. This was the heart of the father handing over delivering up, giving his one and only son. What a picture of a father's love. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all Why should I gain from his real? 
speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So the question then that would be posed is, well, how? How was he delivered up? And in the text, Peter gives what seems to be two competing answers that only the perspective of 54 days later could have provided. First, Peter says he, he was delivered up by God's definite plan through the foreknowledge of God. God, the Father himself was the one who delivered him up, but how did he do it? He did it through the hands of lawless men. The first, not an enemy, but a friend, betrayed with a kiss. Just hours after Jesus had sat down and eaten a meal with this friend, hours after Jesus had washed this friend's feet. An incredible act of humility from such an esteemed man. Hours after that, as he sat there in the garden, this man approached him, this friend approached him, and with the greeting of somebody close, somebody that, that, that the Christ would let in, somebody that he would let into his inner circle, that he would trust so much that he would offer his cheek to be kissed, a sign of saying, we are close, I trust you, you are my friend. first of the lawless men who would betray the Christ. And then in the moment when, when Christ is betrayed there, he's uh, later going to be handed over. But what, uh, how, how the text ends there is it says that, that it's like in that moment, like the hour of darkness was now taking over. This darkness then is going to be a theme throughout the rest of the story. And it is a, a, a physical darkness that spread over because uh, much of this was done in the cover of darkness and then darkness would later ensue. But the, the writer here is hinting at something so much more than just physical darkness by explaining this, this darkness that, that is now taken over. It's the dark plan of Satan, the dark plan of the enemy, the dark plan of sin that is beginning to manifest itself through lawless men, through rejectors of God. And these lawless men now are carrying out what they think will be the end of Jesus. His end. So after the kiss, he is handed over 
and the darkness begins to accelerate. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he serves up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. At this point, the darkness that had rested in Judas that would cause him to betray is now doing what darkness always does, what sin always does. It's beginning to spread. And, and the darkness is now spreading through the religious leaders uh, as they begin then to uh, point to Jesus and mock him, even saying uh, they blindfold him. The, the one who gave people sight is now blindfolded. And the, the same mob, by the way, that was doing this is the same mob that Peter is standing in front of uh, on that day of that first sermon, reminding them what had taken place. The, the very same people who had asked, what does this mean? Uh, it's like uh, Peter is now looking out at those people and, and, and almost like he's begging them to remember, you, you did this. Don't you remember? You mocked him. You, you spit on him. You said, there's no way you're the king of the Jews. Uh, and the mob uh, in this story, the, like the, the evil is beginning to mount and it's going to play itself out in like the mob turning uh, and becoming more and more engrossed in darkness. And the story that we see here that unfolds on this day, it's a story, an actual story. It really happened. But haven't we seen this story play out? Haven't we seen a story play out before where, 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 where people, they, they get entrenched in darkness and then it gets darker and darker and darker? Sin, just wanting to spread and to spread and to spread, where we see things uh, begin to break down. And you say, like, like, what kind of people would do this? What kind of people would engage in this kind of darkness? What kind of people would, uh, would ever, like, do this to Jesus? And, and how dark could it get? Well, the story goes on. And there's a passing on from the religious leaders to the powers of the world. 
And in that we see even a, a, a darker picture. How much darker can it get? It can get worse. Let's just take a look at the next picture. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The fury of the mob now is building. And in the story laid out, they have this very clear choice. Like even the power of the world for a second says, hold on, I just want to understand. Make sure that we're all on the same page here. Do you want what is good or do you want what is bad? Do you want what is innocent or do you want what is guilty? Like the choice here seems pretty obvious. Like what, which will you be ruled by? Which of the, the, the competing forces will you allow to dictate and to control the decision that you make? And the mob responds with one voice. Like we want to be driven by our need for vengeance. We want to be driven by by our envy, the darkness that is inside of us. We want that to determine what we do. And so Pilate looks out and he says, well then what should I do with good? What should I do with the innocent one? What should I do with Jesus of Nazareth? The world looks and says, kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Crucify him. Make good stop. Get rid of it. We want to be ruled by what is inside. We want to be ruled by this darkness. Crucify that which is good. And so they did. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. 
And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And there is that wrath and the fury of the mob just began to accelerate Christ in the strength of uh, a young man, 33 or so, who had spent the last few years traveling is now um, beaten down. He, he can't even carry uh, the wooden cross any longer. He falls to his knees and someone has to come and carry it for him. All around the mob looking in now who have given in to the proclivity of darkness, the, the, the sin that rests inside of them, mock and jeer him. He then finally arrives at this place, Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, where there then, uh, almost like to the sound of the mob roaring, the nails are driven into his hands, driven into his feet. And there, like a common criminal, hung between two other men as they look in and say, he can't even save himself. How could he be a savior? And Peter there on that day, on that Good Friday, I wonder thinking, what is happening to my friend? I wonder what his perspective though. Of course, much different 54 days later. And it would be easy for us even now, 2,000 and so days, uh, years later, to look back and to say, man, what kind of men could do this? What kind of people could do this? I mean, how could you do this to anyone? But how could you do this to Jesus? 
And in his opening sermon, when Peter is proclaiming to the crowd, don't you remember Jesus? Don't you remember all the good that he did? Don't you remember all it is that you learned about him? Don't you know all of those things and they didn't change you? They didn't move you? What does this mean? Peter was preaching. What does it mean? All of this that we're teaching and communicating. What does it mean? Peter's saying, let me answer the question. Who could do this to Jesus? Who could put him on that cross? Who could give into the darkness inside of them? Who could choose evil over good? Who could choose guilty over innocent? In the very first sermon, Peter answers the question. He says, who could do that? You could. You could. Every one of you. I could, I think Peter was saying. I just betrayed him that night. I could give in to it. I see the story of the crowd moving its way to the point of the crucifixion is a, a, a story that is also pointing us to something. And what is it pointing us to? It is pointing us to the great need for something to happen to the darkness. It's pointing us to the great need that if this, if this, uh, if this thing that is inside of humanity, if it isn't dealt with, then the story of all of time and the repeating story of all of history will only always climax in darkness taking over. Every human story and every human society and every human civilization will all finally arrive at this point unless something happens to the darkness but what what could happen to it he was delivered up by the foreknowledge and the definite plan of God what could happen to the darkness as he hung on that cross Christ screams out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me to the darkness? Why have you let it all fall down on me? Where are you? And I think Peter, in that moment, as he listened to the Christ cry out, probably didn't know the answer to the question. But 54 days later, he did. With the beauty of being able to look back on a fresh perspective. And I wonder if that scribe, that Pharisee who I think was sitting in the back of the room, saw had that exact moment in mind when he penned the words decades later, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
while we were still giving in to the darkness, while the natural proclivity of our sinful heart was still on the move, Christ died for us. And as Peter looked out on that crowd on that very first day, he looked and said, you did this. I did this. We all did this. I wonder if his mind went back to the night before that night. And all of a sudden, that dinner, that last supper, and Jesus' final words to them there meant something so much more to Peter 54 days later than it did on the night of Good Friday. Listen to the words. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You plead my cause. You. 
And so there Peter, he looks out at the crowd, the thousands that are gathered that are listening to his voice in the very first Christian sermon in response to a question, what does this mean? Like, what does all of this mean? And Peter now is summarizing it to him and he's saying, let me tell you what it means. It means that the darkness, that the proclivity towards sin, that the the natural movement of humanity, the natural movement of the individual, and the natural movement of all of us, it no longer has to end in darkness. It no longer has to end taking over us. We don't have to give in to the wrong anymore. We don't have to choose the guilty instead of the innocent. We don't have to choose the wrong instead of the good because Jesus went to the cross and he took all of the darkness upon himself. And even though we put him there, he died for us. And so now, now we can rise with him. And then at the end they go, but Peter then, what do we do? What do we do with all of this? And Peter said, oh, there's only, there's only one thing to do. Just turn. Just turn. Just turn from the darkness. Turn from sin. Peter uses the word repent. Just repent of sin. Repent of that and turn to Jesus and see what he did for us on that day. He paid for all of it. I think on that day, Peter looked back on the night before and he said, I get it now, Jesus. I get the bread. And I get the wine. I understand what you were telling us in that moment. So why don't you take that out right now where you're at? Go ahead and open it up. day when Christ first instituted this, I can only imagine the thoughts that the disciples had on what he was saying. 24 hours later, as they watched the body broken and as they watched the blood spilled, I'm sure those thoughts began to change. A few days later, when he appeared to them in the upper room, I'm sure the thoughts began to change again. But 50 days after that day, when they sat there in the upper room and when the Holy Spirit fell and when the crowd gathered around them and said, Peter, what does this mean? And as Peter drove home his opening sermon, he brought them all to the point that they would always come back to. And it's always gonna come back first to the cross where we're gonna see and we're gonna remember that Christ's body was broken for us on that day, that his blood was poured out for us, that he took on the darkness so it wouldn't fall on us. So Peter brings the crowd to that moment. So we're gonna participate. Go ahead and break the bread, remembering Christ's body broken for you. Go ahead and partake.
And Father, now as we turn our attention to the juice, being reminded of your blood that was poured out, the blood that was the payment for our sin, the blood that sealed the promise of our redemption, the blood that made it so that we could be washed, the blood that made it so that the darkness, sin wouldn't own us anymore, the blood that set us free, you spilled it for us. Go ahead and take the juice. And there on that day, as Peter preached the very first sermon, it's not over yet, but it's close. We're done with this part. But as Peter preached that, that opening sermon, near the end of it, uh, we would see what was supposed to happen in every Christian sermon. And that is that we're reminded of the beauty of the gospel. And uh, that when we listen to Christian sermon, that what then is supposed to happen is it brings us back to the point of the cross. And we're washed again in the beauty of how Christ paid for our sins. And it just breaks through us again over and over and over again. And it changes us over and over and over again. And it's the answer to the question, why 2,000 years later, we still refer to this day as Good Friday because it was good news that Christ went to the cross and paid it all for us. So I wanna invite you guys uh, to sing two songs with us before you go. Would you stand with us? Savior
Would you sing Amazing Grace with me tonight? Grace that taught my heart. Peter, on that day, in his opening sermon, spends one line explaining the life of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He spends one verse then, talking about his death, which we've looked into tonight. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in the opening sermon, Peter, he drives it up to the point. He says, remember his life and remember his death. Remember what he did for us on that moment on the cross when he paid for all of our sins. But then Peter's saying, I'm standing here in front of you today, 50 days later, I'm standing in front of you, all of you men of Israel and all of the world, uh, not just because of the life that he lived and not just because of the death that he died, even though it was a death above every other death, 
But then Peter goes on and he spends the next nine verses not talking about his life and not talking about his death. But in his next verse, he says, it doesn't end there. And he says this, but God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter says, as amazing as it was that he died and paid for it all, something else happened and we've got to talk about that. So come back on Sunday. We'll have one verse to look over. This one right here. God raised them up. He loosed the pangs of death and it was impossible for death to hold them down. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you delivered them up and you delivered them up for us. Thank you for being willing to do so. How deep is your love? And it's amazing and almost inconceivable for us to think about that we then who crucified you, who put you on that, who could give in to sin, were rescued by you. Thank you for the payment of our sins that sets us free from it, that washes us white as snow. But thank you that the story didn't end. And as we gaze into the beauty of the resurrection on Sunday, I pray that that same resurrection power would fall on us on Sunday and would rise up inside of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight, guys.